All right. This reminds me of my days as a teacher where you have the class introduce themselves and then you forgot everybody's name. (laughs) So that's where I'm at this morning. And thank you for being here today. It's really wonderful to see such a full Zendo. And I know it's a holiday weekend. It's a long weekend for many of us. And if you look outside, oh my goodness, it's gorgeous. (laughs) And on long, gorgeous weekends, you really could be anywhere, but you're here. And that means a lot. So thank you. Thank you for being here this morning. For the past couple of weeks, and I think for at least a few weeks more, we're going to be talking about Koban. Koban Chino Otagawa Roshi. Sometimes referred to as our root teacher, or our lineage holder, or our lineage founder. Whether you're here for the first time, or this is your 10th time, or your 100th time, who's keeping count? Not me. When you show up here on Sundays and throughout the week to practice, you show up to practice in a particular tradition, in a particular lineage. The Soto Zen tradition, I'm not going to talk about that today, and the lineage of Kobun Chino Otagawa Roshi or Koban, for short. It's a lineage that has a particular style to it. If you go to many different Zen centers across the country, whether in San Francisco or Minnesota or Los Angeles, they'll all more or less be doing the same thing that we're doing here. Sitting, walking, bowing, chanting. But they might do it a little bit differently than we're doing it. There's this common Zen spirit that we all share, and then there's particular ways in which each center and each individual and each teacher manifests that spirit. Little quirks. And one of them is that we call Koban, Koban. You go elsewhere, it's Suzuki Roshi, Katagiri Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, their last name with Roshi. It's a title, an honorific, venerable teacher. Koban is just Koban. Our practice, our spirit is a little more informal, you could say. It's also a little more intimate because of that. That's a wonderful thing. Another thing that's distinctive in my view, about this particular way of practicing Zen, about Koban's way of practicing Zen, is its emphasis on trust. Trust both in others, which Koban says is a really hard thing to do, to trust other people. I think we all know this. I certainly do. There have been times when I put my trust in other individuals And that trust has been, what do we say, betrayed, broken, and I end up really hurt. And it becomes harder the next time, whether with that person or another person, to say, I trust you. And to be open with them, to be honest with them, to be intimate with them. And equally hard, Coben says, 
Is it to trust ourselves? And we talked a little bit last week about why that might be. Some reasons that we tend not to look here and start here, but somewhere out there. And my talk today will brush up against the edge of that a little bit. Coben also says that trust is in a way the foundation of this practice. And I remember something I read from him where he said, if you don't have a ceaseless, limitless trust in yourself, you can't do this practice even for one minute. And then I panicked because I thought, I don't have that. And what have I been doing for the last 10 years if I, if I don't have that? Um, I can see now that my first mistake, if you will, was thinking I knew what COVID meant. I didn't. I still don't, but I knew that I didn't know that. That's a start. And trusting my first judgment that I certainly didn't have what it is that he was talking about. So I want to continue with this theme of trust today, but I want to look at it from a particular perspective. And the sentence that I want to pick apart a bit from one of Coben's talks is that the treasure is within you. The treasure is within you. That sounds great. That this sort of knowledge or wisdom or understanding that I'm looking for and the reason that I started coming to Zen in the first place is within me. It's not out there somewhere, but I kind of don't know what this means. It's within me. We talked a little bit last week that this seems to be at odds with the way in which at least I approach the world. I tend to think that I'm not the place to go when I'm trying to figure out how to do something or how to change something about my life. I've told the story before that when I first started practicing, I got interested in meditation because my life wasn't going so well. What did I do? Well, I didn't really sit a whole lot and I didn't go to the meditation store to get a zafu, a round cushion to sit on and maybe some incense to light. I went to a bookstore. Right. I'm going to get a lot of books on meditation. I got like this many books on meditation. I started reading a lot about meditation instead of actually meditating. It didn't seem appropriate for me to just sit down and try it as a way of figuring out what is this practice about. I got to read about it first. Something else I tend to do when I get interested in something, again, instead of just engaging with that thing, is listen to podcasts about that thing. Anyone else listen to podcasts in here? Yeah. <laughs> we used to have a, um, a study group for a while called Dharma Dialogues. And I clearly remember one gathering where like in the first five minutes, four people had talked about six podcasts they were listening to. <laughs> and I wrote it down in big letters in my notebook. Why are so many people listening to podcasts? And then I didn't listen to another one after that. My very reactionary, impulsive self. I was like, I'm out. <laughs> this is absurd. Glorified radio programs on demand. That's what podcasts are. 
apps are another thing. I remember cringing the first time I heard some sort of commercial, probably on a podcast, (laughs) for saying, do you have a problem in your life? Is there something you're trying to solve? There's an app for that. (laughs) I just need my smartphone and a download button. We talked about experts a bit last week. And these sorts of examples can make it seem like it's a modern problem, this tendency to look outside of ourselves, to not trust ourselves when we're trying to work with something in our lives. It's not. Surprise, surprise. You find this in, say, Plato as well, right? Plato is quite clear that if you want knowledge or understanding or wisdom, the treasure that I think Coben is talking about, you can't find it in this dusty, topsy-turvy world that we live in. You got to look elsewhere to this other realm where there's these perfect, eternal, abstract objects. And maybe if you're lucky, you can somehow get there and access these things. That's where the wisdom comes from. You got to do some work, but it's not here. It's not here. Certainly not within you, in Plato's view. So what's the alternative to looking outside to books and apps and podcasts and whatever it is that Plato was talking about? It's not to do without these things. Don't do what I did when I heard about four people listening to six podcasts in five minutes and be very impulsive and reactionary. Don't do that and just say no more podcasts. There's a place for all of these things in our lives and in our practice. There's a place for them. They don't need to be the whole of our practice. We put them where it is they need to be. Dogen says you put high things in high places and low things in low places. The books go on the bookshelf. The podcasts stay on your phone. And you have the rest of your life to explore and enjoy and experience in a way that's going to be meaningful for you. And I remind myself and you of this because Coben says that we realize the treasure within ourselves as we receive and we reflect on the teachings. There's a place for all of these things. They come, but we have to do some work to realize what's already inside. And to remember that our practice is not about extremes. It's not about this or that one or the other. It's also not about avoiding extremes. Sometimes the extreme is necessary. Our practice is about an appropriate response. What is needed now? What's needed right here in this moment, in response to this thing, in response to this audience? What do you need right now? I have no idea. Something. So with that in mind, I want to talk a bit what I'm going to call about what I'm going to call action today. Maybe better put as the role of 
our present direct experience in our practice. Some of you know that I spend a lot of time in recovery spaces. Sunday evenings, I lead a Buddhist-inspired recovery group. I'm finishing a series of classes to be able to go into a local prison, to go into Rockview, to lead AA meetings there. And throughout the week, I'm at 12-step meetings. And something that's not special to recovery spaces, but has a prominent place in recovery spaces, is a talk of a higher power, or a power greater than ourselves. And those of you that took part in our winter ongo period, our intensive practice period, know this. We spent a week talking about higher powers, powers greater than ourselves. And some people shared a bit about what this might be for them. People said things like nature, or their friends and their families, certainly Sangha, one of the three jewels, can be like this. Things other than ourselves that we can lean on for support, sometimes in hard times, sometimes in great times. And I've noticed from spending so much time in recovery spaces and in my own recovery journey that there's a pitfall that people can fall into, that I fell into a little bit, when this thing of a higher power comes on the scene, and it's you tend to hand over too much to that higher power. I don't need to go to meetings because I got a higher power. I don't need to make an inventory because I got a higher power. I don't need to make amends to other people that I've harmed in my life because I got a higher power. I don't need a job because I got a higher power. They're going to take care of it for me. (laughs) And sometimes I think that there's a similar kind of pitfall that we as Zen practitioners can meet with in our practice. Sometimes we say that we are connected with all things. We place a lot of emphasis on interconnectedness and our relationship with the entire universe in the 10 directions. Maybe I don't need to sit today. I'm connected with everything. The universe will take care of me. You've heard me talk about this before. Faith is at the center of my practice. I have faith that no matter what, I'm going to be okay. I don't have to practice. I don't have to show up on Sundays, Never mind that I live downstairs. And I'm reminded in this moment of Alan Watts, who said that you can do a lot more than just raise your little finger. You can also make earthquakes because you are the entire universe in the 10 directions as it's manifesting in this particular spot. I'm different from all of the objects on this altar and I'm different from Sherry, but I'm not separate from them. And the same great process that's weaving and creating all things around us, the birds singing and the trees growing, is also the same one that makes earthquakes. And I'm not separate from that. And I make those happen. But maybe to come back to 
what it was that I opened this talk with. A higher power for so many of us that we might not even identify as such is technology. We tend to rely on devices and things that have become available to us for the sake of convenience. And this kind of gets in the way of experiencing what's going on around us. Again, I didn't find myself sitting so much, but reading a lot about sitting, thinking that, that was going to be just as good a way to understand what this practice is all about. I didn't find myself actually going out and walking in nature, but listening to podcasts where other teachers talked about going out and walking in nature and experiences they had and thinking that was going to be the same thing, falling into the trap of, well, they distilled it into these few sentences that are really meaningful. If I can just get them up here. I came across a sentence from a Swiss writer, Max Fersch who says that technology is the knack for so arranging the world that we don't have to experience it. Technology is the knack of so arranging the world that we don't have to experience it. very fashionable to do a lot on Zoom these days. It's not the same as being here. And some of you know that very well. So the point I'd like to offer this morning is that if you'd like to change, because I think it is the case that we're all here seeking something, we need to put in the work. It's fine to have teachings and books and a lot of other things to help us on the way towards reaching whatever goals we might have for ourselves. But we're not going to get there if we ourselves don't contribute our part in the journey. I think about my own recovery journey. When I first started, the 12 steps were just words on a poster on the wall. Talked a lot about honesty and open-mindedness and willingness and how important it was to practice these principles in all my affairs. But it wasn't until I actually sat down to do a searching and fearless moral inventory that I realized how important it was to get honest with myself until I shared that with another individual. Until I looked back through a previous pattern of behavior and saw a lot of people I had harmed, it became willing to make amends to them until I started to cultivate the practice of engaging in a daily reflection that I started to see that these words had some meaning, but I couldn't access that meaning unless I actually put myself in the experiences where the meaning revealed itself to me, where the meaning emerged from within me. Oh, there it is. Couldn't find that in a book.
the truth is what of what is offered in any space, Zen center, church, synagogue, recovery meeting, weekend business seminar, arises within you and as the result of your actions and it is born from your present direct experience. It's in part for this reason that we spend so much time and place so much emphasis on practice here and not belief. It's not really about what's up here. It's about the engagement of this whole being that you are. On activity and not doctrine. And on a willingness to just keep going even when things seem confusing, even when it's not clear, even when you're struggling, just keep going and having the faith that you can do this. Because, as Coben writes, faith is the content of the way-seeking mind. You can do this, and you know you can do this. That's why you're here. Even if you might lose sight of that sometimes, I certainly do all the time. And so I think Coben is right when he says, that true religion is only accomplished by yourself. And that to do this practice, you don't need anybody else beside you. Doesn't mean you should become a hermit, because it's really nice to have friends, to have a sangha, to have a teacher that you can lean on and rely on for support, who can offer guidance so that your sleeves don't need to be wet with tears at the end of the day because previous past experiences that brought you so much joy are no more and what was has faded. But don't forget about yourself. Don't forget that it's up to you to contribute something to. So this is my offering, my short offering to you this morning. That the true teaching doesn't come from outside you, but from within. And you can see that the treasure is within you if you take care of what is immediate, meeting whatever it is that's present for you right now, most intimately, and giving it your full attention. I'll end 
with a line from one of Ryokan's poems. It's an 18th century Zen monk. What's present right now? What's immediate? To what should I give my full attention? Ryokan writes, sitting quietly, listening to the spring song of the birds. Thank you very much.